Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We're talking about American Gangster today. How how do you feel about that? I'm really excited about it. I feel like this is one of the episodes where we went for our allotted time and we're starting to show fatigue, but still had another show's worth of stuff to say. And yeah, that's always really exciting. It's interesting. Like what we do is not work mm-hmm. because we talk about movies and feelings mm-hmm. and ideas and stuff. But we there's certainly a point in the conversation where uh, you've been talking about those things intensely for a while and you can, you can wear, but you still want to keep going. And I think that that's how we left this, which was very nice. Yeah. And then it's like Ernest Hemingway said, like at the end of the day, you always leave a little more American gangster to talk about that you're excited to get to next time. <laughs> Actually, it's so funny. I just just this second read a Joan Didion analysis of Ernest Hemingway, which we will cut out mm. of this this because it's that's a, like the most insufferable thing I can say. <laughs> nah, you could say much worse stuff. She is the Jim Morrison of Marissa Rabisi's. Let's be honest. She is the Jim Morrison. <laughs> I hope that we can somehow get that message to to Griffin Dunn to deliver up the flagpole. Yes. And she'll be like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> what do you think uh, Joan Didion's engagement, if, if any at all, was with Jim Morrison? Well, she wrote a piece about Jim Morrison or about like sitting in on a recording session with The Doors and how I think it was just that Jim Morrison wasn't showing up to work. And just people trying to figure out what to do when Jim wasn't there. Right. I can't remember. Like, do they actually encounter each other in that? Or is it just like I was where Jim Morrison should have been, but was not? (laughs) I think it was I was where Jim Morrison should have been. Like, it's very interesting to me that Joan Didion has become this like symbol of the 60s when as far as I can tell, she kind of hated the 60s. Sure did. She sure did. (laughs) It was like was there for some parts of it, but also just observed other parts coolly from from afar, (laughs) which is fantastic. She was like poking the 60s like a jellyfish with a stick, (laughs) which is actually I think it's kind of heartening that you can be a symbol of an era by like being the part of the era that's not sure about the era the whole time it's happening. Uh, yeah, that's what it's like to observe eras. Is uh, it's, a, it's a pretty imperfect art, and ideally mm-hmm. you uh, nail it in retrospect. Okay, so people who are uh, listening right now, they're listening to Why Are Dads. How would you describe mm-hmm. what Why Are Dads is, Sarah Marshall? Oh my gosh. Why Are Dads is a show where we find excuses to talk to people we want to talk to by getting them to think of a movie, any movie that they like and has some kind of dads or what the hell, even men in it. <laughs> and, and who were we joined by uh, for this episode? We were joined by my friend, uh, the wonderful writer Sin Atesue, who has also just made the Clark County Poet Laureate, which uh, means Las Vegas. And we talked about American Gangster, which is a movie that I had never seen before. And I wasn't into gangster movies at the time that this came out, but I also suspect that it just has never received the love that it really deserved. And I just really loved this conversation. Yeah, this movie is really great. Mm-hmm. I'm outside of the Jay-Z album, which we actually talk about a little bit. I missed it as a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed spending time with this movie and I loved this Mm -hmm. conversation with Sin because I would say we often talk about whatever movies 
we talk about from various dimensions, but like we really covered this movie from many, many, many dimensions and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, three perspectives, obviously, but we covered it from many different angles more than normal. <laughs> and I, I loved that. Yeah. And there, I mean, to prep people who don't really know what they're getting into, like, I guess if someone's frame of reference for gangster movies is like The Godfather, what is American Gangster? Um, it's about the Jim Morrison of Harlem. <laughs> it is about the quest to cut out the middlemen and to own your own business. <laughs> yeah, starring the coolest uh, Denzel Washington being the best Denzel Washington. You know, someone who you had once admire in an interesting way and are are slightly to wholly terrified of. You know, that to me is the really interesting thing about gangster movies is how much are they positioning the gangster characters as the actual heroes? How much of that is the audience bringing to the table? Because there's definitely like Scarface, for example, I don't think it valorizes organized crime. I think it recognizes it as like a glamorous way to get the money and then the women and so on. But like like every Oliver Stone movie, practically, it is a parable about how if you fly too close to the sun, you'll get shot to death in your own mansion. <laughs> um, that was a spoiler. And Wall Street is essentially the same movie. And so Oliver Stone has this habit of like making really depressing movies that people misread because they just remember the middle part. But I do think that like the broader trend of movies about gangsters and really criminals as a whole, organized crime certainly is really pushing on this idea that I think we spent a lot of time talking about in this episode of like, who decides what legitimate power is and why? And I think that this movie is more overtly about that, partly because in this case, it's not just about legitimate and illegitimate power, but about white and black America. Like, I think this movie comes the closest in many ways of anything I've seen to like, really putting pressure on those categories until they burst. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I I really think the history of organized crime in this country in one way or another is about the history of marginalized communities trying to vie for power in ways that are on are on the table. And over time, movies about white mafiosos who are of Italian backgrounds Mm -hmm. that gets bled out of the message over time and it's just like isn't it being a gangster isn't it pretty cool (laughs) 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 and even though that's not the message even though that's not the message as you say and that's not the case with Scarface obviously but like that's not the message but that is often what you know people pick up from like minute 20 to 20 minutes before the movie ends like that's what they remember We know Scarface didn't want us to want to be gangsters because it didn't show beautiful food. And I think we really know Scorsese, like, wants us to get the seduction of organized crime life because everyone, everyone's a family. They have beautiful meals. Like, you're seeing beautiful food all the time. Like, yes. I, I think I, I'm confident that that's what he's doing with that. And not just because I watch any movie and I'm like, I really want some of that pasta. And I don't care if I have to lie to someone about selling cocaine to just like have some of it on my plate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, that's so perfectly said. And Scarface, Scarface does touch on it. Scarface is a movie where every Cuban character is played by an Italian or Robert Loja. Yes who I think is also Italian, probably, <laughs> except for the one Cuban guy in it who whose acting name is Stephen Bauer. So it just it had to be very confusing at the time. 
All of this is to say that American Gangster does a beautiful job of saying movies about crime should be saying or could be saying a whole lot more about the intricacies of power dynamics in particular when it comes to race and what is considered valid and invalid forms of power in America, which are all some sort of expression of violence. Mm. Hmm. I loved it. It was a fun chat. Yeah. Despite how grim that just that sounds. Well, and, you know, and like that is why we do it this way. I think, you know, I feel like so much becomes accessible when you talk about movies that people love and why we love them and what they do for us and what they are unable to do. And yeah, if you haven't seen this movie, I really recommend it. It's got wonderful performances. The soundtrack is perfect. I mean, it's Ridley Scott doing his thing. It has everything to recommend it. So I want to take a little bit of a quick detour. Mm -hmm. We are both people who love movies already. And we talk, Mm -hmm. our relationship has been talking about movies in one way or another as a means of talking about the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember so many of our early conversations talking about serious things in our lives by talking about stuff that happens in movies. So Freddy, Freddy, we were talking about Freddy nonstop and I already, I already love movies. I take them very seriously, but since I've been spending so much time recently reading about mythology and mm-hmm. you know, the, the story of stories in our history, I've by way of these conversations that we have, I've taken it even more seriously than normal and mm-hmm. not seriously, but like I have loved the role of movies and what they provide as, I don't know, like a a playground for talking about these larger issues more than ever before. And it's been a joy. And I especially loved the conversation we had uh, with Julie last week about Pretty in Pink. Mm -hmm. And I loved that we're able to talk about, for example, like what does Ducky mean? That's what our show should be called. What does Ducky mean? What does Ducky mean? And what do you see when you see that? What do various attachments to different characters mean to different people? And mm-hmm. I, I love that we have that opportunity. And we were lucky, as you know, to have um, John Cryer listen to the episode and he shared something mm-hmm. with us. Uh, John Cryer famously played Ducky. He's the one and only portrayer of Ducky that there has ever been. Yes, regardless of how one feels like myself, if, whether or not Ducky's a pest or or if you're in Julie Klausner's camp and think that Ducky turned out to be a comedy writer, you love John Cryer as Ducky. What did John Cryer share with us? <laughs> so, okay, this was fascinating because that I own the Pretty in Pink novelization. And I remember when I read it, because I bought it back in high school, I was like, oh, the novelization does the broadcast news ending where Andy just doesn't end up with anyone. And she's just like... I'm just going to move on with my life, basically. And I was like, it's really weird that there's like the novelization where she ends up with no one, the ending that we have where she ends up with Blaine. And as far as I know, the test audience ending where she tried to end up with Ducky and then they booed and and they redid it. But from the script pages that John Cryer sent us, it's clear that like, no, they filmed the broadcast news ending, Mm. the one where she ends up with nobody. Right. And she ends in a place where she's like, the duck man, you're here. And he's dressed up for prom, as you said, like a character in What We Do in the Shadows, which is actually (laughs) true. And then we cut to the new ending in the movie that we have now. And and Blaine is like, I love you. And you're like, oh, my God, you guys have gone out two times. I'm still floored by that. I know that teens move fast and I'm just old 
now, but (laughs) we didn't see the relationship get to that place. That's all I'm going to say. But the way that that original ending was going to go, according to the script, is that like she and Ducky walk into the prom, everyone's silent and staring at them. Blaine tries to apologize and she's like, no, and kind of blanks him. And then it's just like Andy and Ducky dancing and then Andy lifts Ducky up, <laughs> which is also like they do the dirty dancing ending where you lift someone up. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand why people would have booed that because it's a teen movie and you want Molly Ringwald to end up with somebody and she's your proxy. And like as much as I love the broadcast news ending, a part of me is always like, well... It feels weird when a story does that to you. It feels like you're walking down the stairs and you miss the last stair. Yeah, I mean, he the way that John Cryer said it was he said, your podcast made me think about the original ending of Pretty in Pink, and I realized that it's always been presented as a false binary. Even I kind of bought into the, she could have ended up with Ducky if not for test audience's narrative. Hmm. And I love that so much because, like, Hmm. if John Cryer was confused by it, uh, (laughs) then obviously I could see how people would become confused about it. But he says... The original ending didn't actually imply that Ducky and Andy are going to be a romantic couple after the prom. And so he shared the pages. And then he said, he said, it's more of a message that she's just not going to buy into the society of rich assholes. It's a big mm. F you. It mm. wasn't that orig- that Andy ended up with Ducky. It was that she didn't end up with Blaine. And so that, that was the thing that I kept trying to ask about with regard to uh, Andy being focused on class and I and Mm. I think I was I was asking it kind of inarticulately and Mm. but like really what I was trying to say is like it seems like to Andy like her immediate universe is Ducky yeah the other available universe is Blaine Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know if like what she was interested in is some access to just like that other universe that's immediately available but Mm. but as it's positioned here it's like once she sees that and she knows what that particular universe is like she's like fuck this I'm out and when she goes to that horrible party like that party is like she has wandered into another genre and she's like in a Brett Easton Ellis story at that point and I feel like that yeah like it makes perfect sense and I think a lot of people do this in college too because college is a place where a lot of people who maybe were like middle class or like thought of themselves as like pretty prosperous before like go and like meet really rich people and you're like oh like this is how rich people live this is it. And yeah, I feel like that's how you, one of the ways you learn what you don't want is like you date someone from a a world and you're like, ugh, no, I I cannot stand your friends even for a minute. (laughs) Right. Totally. It was interesting to know that, and you you know, like you said, you touched on it with the novelization, but we found out that the, the script was suggesting some other alternative that we weren't even necessarily considering. So that's great. The other thing I want to nod to is that I don't know if like John Cryer has like a museum at his house, but I can't believe (laughs) how pristine these script pages are. Like this script is 35 years old and it looks like it was printed yesterday. It's beautiful, but you can tell it's, you can tell it's from an older technology. What if he's just a great archivist? You know how like Jerry Seinfeld has, you know, like a big garage with all his cars in it. I do. Like, I hope that at John Cryer's house, there is a basement 
and there are mannequins and they're wearing all of the ducky outfits and they're climate controlled. I do know there was an episode of Two and a Half Men in which Cryer, for some reason, dressed as ducky. So that costume had to live somewhere. And I, I hope that it was it was in his uh, archive costume room. <laughs> yeah, no human being could replicate that costume like it has to be. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's, just, it's simply it's simply not possible. <laughs> Do you have any uh, parting insights for jumping into this rousing chat about American Gangster? Oh, boy. Yeah, I love that we did Pretty in Pink and American Gangster in the same breath. <laughs> Pretty and Gangster, Gangster and Pink. I'm getting it. <laughs> I, I just think this is a really fun one. I hope that it inspires you to see this movie if you haven't like most of the time I'm like yeah you don't have to watch the movie whatever this one I really I think maybe just because I had managed to miss it for so long and I'm kind of mortified by that I I do think it deserves more love so like yeah watch it if you haven't and enjoy this conversation I feel like we cover some ground All right, everybody, just a couple quick notes before we begin. First, Wire Dads is made possible with support from Knack Factory, which is a commercial content and video production company based in Portland, Maine, that does work throughout these here United States. If you need work of that nature done, get in touch with the folks from Knack Factory. Wired Dads is also made possible with your support. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash Dads. We have bonus episodes over there. We'll have one coming out this week. Uh, we cover all sorts of subjects. <laughs> we talk more about Harry Dean Stanton. So, I mean, what more do you need, really? <laughs> uh, we have bonus episodes like every, you know, a couple of times a month, somewhere, somewhere around there. And it's always a bit of a freer form chat than we engage on on the show and so if you're interested in hearing more or just supporting the show uh that's a great way to do it thank you so much and if you're not able to do so that's totally fine too we're just happy that you are here and along for the ride so thank you to everyone for all of your support in all of its forms also i very occasionally make available a wire dad's shirt uh, that we do in these like limited production runs. We have that open and available for the next 10 days. Uh, and then you will never be able to get this Wire Dads design again. It's these little adorable cherubs holding a Wire Dads banner. Uh, I love this shirt so much. This is the last time it's going to be available before we move on to other Wire Dads merchandise. Uh, so if you want that shirt, you can find that link in the show notes here. You can find it on uh, in links in our social media pages but check out that shirt if that's something that you're looking for and that's something that you would like to wear we love it when people share their pictures of them in their shirts so we just know that the world is being plastered with wire dad's propaganda <laughs> and then finally we have playlists that accompany every one of our episodes um this is something we started a handful of months ago today's episode is no exception there will be a playlist with songs that we select that has been inspired by by the conversation about this movie. Uh, so you can find that in the show notes as well. Uh, it's over on Spotify. That's, I think that's it. That's what we got for you for now. So let's go talk with Sin about American Gangster. Man, I work for at one of the biggest companies in New York City. He ran it for more than 50 years. 
15 years, eight months and nine days. I was with him every day. I worked for him, I protected him, I looked after him, I learned from him. Bumby was rich, but he wasn't white man rich. See, he wasn't wealthy. He didn't own his own company. He thought he did, but he didn't. He just managed it. White man owned it, so they owned him. Nobody owns me, though. stranger hello sarah marshall how are you i just spilled some water but only on myself not on the computer so it's all good i'm so excited uh-huh i've never seen the movie that we watched today that i've watched several times since i was so into it and we're we're graced with a friend of yours can you uh introduce we are graced with the presence of my friend sin ateswe my favorite vegas poet and collaborator Hello, Sin. Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk about American Gangster with y'all. I'm so excited to talk about this with you. Because, like, I think what we realize the show is really about is having people talk about the movie they love most in the world. I hate to, like, do this, but I'm, like, low-key. I loved American Gangster a lot more before I studied it. Like, I still love this movie. This is, like, one of my favorite movies. But I noticed so much about this shit that I did not notice when I was, like, 17 and just, like, obsessed Mm. with Frank Lucas as a person. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, wow. So we picked up some bad advice from those Italian mobsters, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is a film about the ages of man, I feel like, so that that fits. Oh my God, yes. So I'm so excited to dive into that first. Tell us what American Gangster is about. American Gangster, I will start by saying that it has one of my all-time favorite economical openings at this point, where we open by watching Frank Lucas. I don't know if he, does he personally light the guy on fire, or does he just kind of, you know... He's part of the lighting the guy on fire. He also shoots him. He definitely does that. So he throws the cigar that lights him, and then someone else dumps the gasoline. Yes, that's that's really good. I mean, it's a terrible crime, but it's great filmmaking, <laughs> <laughs> which is the area that we are in today. And so we watch that. We watch him be just, like, pretty stoic, I guess. I think that's one of his defining traits. And then the next scene, we watch his... Mentor, the man he has worked for for 15 years, Bumpy, just kind of quietly. I mean, I think he has a heart attack, but he just kind of lets himself die, and he's with Frank when it happens. And then the next scene is his funeral. Idris Elba puts a cocktail on Bumpy's nice table, and I feel like that just kind of really explains the trajectory of the rest of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, which growing up in my house was a cardinal sin against my father. And so that's what cardinal sin against Bumpy and it's a cardinal sin against Frank. (laughs) Yeah, you don't damage a man's wood. You know, that's like a manly art that men are allowed to love and, and cherish. He, I mean, the trajectory of the movie is that he basically rises first to Bumpy's level of power and then and this is like me doing the summary with the least knowledge. My read of it is that 
he becomes powerful in a way that the police who are trying to catch him can't really understand because they're like, Frank Lucas, who's he working for? And it's like, nobody. He's working for Frank Lucas. And like, and people <laughs> can't catch him for years because they just are convinced that there's he's working for some white guy or some Italian guy or something, and he's not. Right, this reminded me of like classic Sarah Marshall arguments about... <laughs> About cops. About why serial killers. No, about serial serial killers and cops, right? Yes. Is that, that one of the reasons, the primary reasons they go undetected, despite how smart or not smart they are, is because of really bad myopic police work. <laughs> yeah. And that the cops don't know what to look for. And in this case, it's very racist police work. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the racist police work. And then we also have this deuteragonist <laughs> in the form of Russell Crowe, who is just a big meatball on some shoulders. And I say that as a woman whose type <laughs> is that. <laughs> meatball with like a late Brady Bunch hair. It's great. He's like... <laughs> He just always looks like he should be carrying a hoagie, you know? Like, I know this whole movie is set in New York, but he just, like, feels like he, he wants to go to a Wawa. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah, and it is about the rise and fall of Frank Lucas, and it is one of those movies that I love, like Heat or Sleepless in Seattle, where we have two main characters who barely interact with each other until the very end, but they are fated. And it's like so many other organized crime and like cop, cat and mouse movies. And also, I think, unlike them in some really interesting ways. I had not seen it before we were preparing for this show either. And I also suspect that it maybe didn't get the reception that it deserved when it came out. Yeah, this movie has just tremendous things to say about so many things. I love how t how tightly in a lot of parts it does it and how, how sprawling it does in other parts. Sin, what was your experience with this movie? It sounds like you've been into it for a while. Why did you bring it to this conversation? Yeah, I mean, so I would say like American Gangster for me, I think, and honestly for a lot of people my age, like especially young black men and women, American Gangster was like that film when we saw it coming out that we had mm. been waiting on for a while, mm. where it was like, this is our black mm. mob film. We get like a black gangster film. And then Jay-Z did an album that was not like a, the, the soundtrack, but was married to and used samples from like like quotes, uh, parts of the, the movie, pulls like Dominic Catano's like success speech, like all these different parts and builds the album American Gangster entirely around mm. it. Um, and so it felt like they were, you know, American Gangster is like the most like hip hop mafia movie um, that there it, that there was mm -hmm. at the time. And when I was young, I had like a kind of love for it because I saw so much of, I mean, this is the thing that I'm realizing. There's a lot that I watched and I, I saw a lot of wish fulfillment for my younger self in the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? This kind of fantasy of a black crime figure who would have the respect and admiration of all of these people even the ones who you know despise him like Trupo and Richie mm -hmm. Robert like all these people like everyone still like recognizes his cunning and his charm and his you know his virtuosity which is somewhat it's questionable to me now like it used to be so clear to me that Frank Lucas was like a good dude who made hard choices and like you know what I mean and now I'm like mm, <laughs> you know what I mean I was like oh Hold on a second. The movie itself feels kind of mixed on that because I feel like, wow, like he's, I mean, especially next to Russell Crowe, um, like I was watching this and my friend kind of came in at the very end where it's like Russell Crowe and Frank Lucas finally facing off. And she was like, 
Russell Crowe just looks so bad, and his arguments are not making sense. It, you know, this movie has a surprising lack of love for cops. Yeah, which is great. And Denzel Washington compared to Russell Crowe, who feels very inside of a character who has lived very hard and just wakes up like, you know, <laughs> Frank Lucas looks, I think he has the quality that I have always been kind of fascinated by in Al Pacino's portrayal of Michael Corleone, where he seems to just have total control over his emotions. If you look at it one way and then you look at it another way and you're like, is that also because his emotions are kind of necrotizing because he's cut them off and right. when you cut the circulation off, then there's damage. But also the movie, it's like the movie seems to love him so much. And then every so often it's like, but heroin kills people. Don't forget. But anyway, it's, it's but it's great to work in a heroin packaging plant, though. It's really fun. <laughs> That's what I find so fascinating about it is that I can absolutely see the read on this being everything that Sinja said is that this is like a mafia movie for us. Like this is like an organized crime movie for us. But the statement that I love the most about this movie is like, even if you succeed big in capitalism, capitalism still wins mm, and right. everyone dies. Like everyone gets crushed. Everyone gets fucked. Yeah. And it was so glorious to see all those scenes and sort of the, the height. And then he gets called out by his mom at some point, which is like everyone's worst nightmare. Yes. Who is there to remind that it's like, even though you're big at this game, it's still their game. Which I don't think Scorsese had the balls to do. Yeah, moms in Scorsese movies are personified by Catherine Scorsese, who feeds you a huge meal after you've murdered someone. Period. <laughs> <laughs> <Here we are. laughs> I think that the scene with the mom, that struck me so much because if you peep, like, besides the bullet, that's the only time that he's ever hit. <sighs> Frank is not harmed at all in the entire film. And, like, when you talk about him being in control, the only times he's ever not in control or he has to sort of is, like, when he gets shot and when his mother, like, forces him to sit. Yeah. Or, you know, and the last one is, like, when, of course, when he's in the interrogation room. But that really feels like he's in charge. You know what I mean? Even though he yeah. doesn't get to negotiate in the way that he'd like to, he's totally sure of himself. Mm. So we're talking, and this is why our dads, and I know we're talking about films, but like so many bad dads, <laughs> like how many bad dads in this fucking movie and like one mom. Right. Frank's dad's not here. Frank's dad's not here. Bumpy is essentially Frank's dad. Mm -hmm. There's no mention of Richie's parents. Richie is a shitty father. Richie's mother is like, we seem to uh, understand her as a better parent than Richie, but we don't see anything of her, which probably has more to do with the movie's treatment of women. Mm. But you know what I mean? And so there's this thing about the the mother, uh, Mrs. Lucas, and how she holds a position and power that is singular in the film. Mm. And like it's very like black matriarchal. Mm -hmm. But it, it makes me think because, uh, again, like all of the contradictions uh, that I sort of noticed about Frank this time around right like we love him and he become he's the American gangster the perfect example of the American gangster because of the virtues he espouses are what truth uh honesty integrity hard work family right like these are the things but then you you say that like family is most important to you but then like you're willing to let your cousin whatever happens to your cousin happens to him because he's fucking up your money mm -hmm. right or like you don't care what uh happens to the members of your family because of the risk you're taking or because of what you'll do you know what i'm saying it's very american to like spit out some ideals that are nice and easy to like latch onto and then to not actually live in those ideals mm -hmm. or to live in them when it's convenient yeah and i think that that was like one of the most american and very capitalistic 
kinds of things that I saw about the film mm. this time around that I'm I really didn't notice when I was younger. Yeah, which I feel like gets pointed to in organized crime movies and one of the things I love about the Godfather movies is that Michael really seems to go astray when he tries to get too big. Like he tries to grow too much and too fast mm. and like has this dream of legitimacy and respect, which is seems to be what inspires his like really unhinged behavior. And the the principles that we see his father live by are like, you know, amass your little your little empire, but like play ball with the other empire guys and like don't try and wipe everyone else out. And Michael, who served in World War II, is like, no, I think I should wipe everyone else out. You know what I think that this movie did better than any mob movie I've seen so far is like there's the whole mob movie cliche where the, there's like the cop chasing the bad guy or, or even mm-hmm. just like detective movie where there's the cop chasing the bad guy. There's the like you and I were alike sort of thing. And like this movie is like so good at illustrating that and then making the secondary statement, which is if you're so alike, why the fuck cops? <laughs> Yeah. And in a way that like I've I've started to realize like all this stuff about my dad, a family before me was involved in like very small organized crime bookie stuff mm-hmm. and just like hated the cops. And I thought that it was obvious like why he hated the cops, because like obviously they were on different sides of that thing. And he's like, how come they get to be us but are dignified? Right. And have a pension fund. Right, exactly, and, and be celebrated and have parades about them. And this movie really made me be like, "Oh, yeah." yeah. And then you multiply you multiply the state monopoly of of violence with uh, sort of dealing with taking skimming from drugs and allowing drugs come in, and then the lens of race. And I was like, "Shit, man, this movie does some stuff that I did not expect in a Ridley Scott epic." <laughs> <laughs> Ridley Scott, who brought us Gladiator. I knows how to use Russell Crowe. Say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he went where Russell Crowe went. He was like, Russell, once you were this person and this kind of role made sense. And now you're going to be Richie. (laughs) Oh, man. I think that I was most uh, interested in like this, what you said, Alex, about how there's these varying gangs that get like we get pointed out. Right. There's Frank's family. But then there's and like within every group, like there's like they kind of break open the uh, normal dichotomy of the good guy and the bad guy because there's the good guys. But then there's the bad good guys, like the New York cops, right? And that versus like Essex County. But then there's like the bad guys, but then there's the good bad guys. So there's like Frank Lucas's family versus like Tango or like him versus like the Italians. Or even there's like Dominic Catano versus the other Italians who supposedly are not for progress, right? There's this like subgroup and they really like take everyone and kind of force you to consider them in relationship to the other people in their own community as opposed to like this blanket sort of moralism. Like you, you can't really like compare the morals of Frank Lucas to the morals of Richie Roberts because they're not in the same uh, situations. Right. Mm. I think that was also one of the things that I thought was so interesting about when they fucking finally meet. Oh, I've seen this shit so many times and I'm like, dog, they literally don't ever even see each other. He sees him at the fucking <laughs> boxing match. Mm-hmm. It's the only time he ever even saw him. Oh, actually, I guess, no, I take it back. They saw him, they took a picture of him when he was uh, getting stopped by Trupo as well. So he's seen him a couple of times. But they have this conversation and they have this like mutual understanding, um, like you say. And then the thing that I feel like I hated that the movie glossed it, like, I'm like, I, I guess it has to end at some point. But then Richie quits and goes to be his defense lawyer. Yeah. 
was it like did you have a change of heart and like you realize like oh wow maybe this is like not good or did you like get paid off because Frank actually had some stash money somewhere and you were like okay yeah. get these cops and like here's some you know I'm like there's like a whole element of that at the end that I think is unexplained and leaves me with questions because yeah. we do know that like the representation of these characters is not sort of absolute right like uh, Richie is we keep hearing that he didn't take that million dollars mm-hmm. but when you look at the scene that wasn't an easy choice for him and it becomes very clear that he uses that one what he seems to uh, label as a virtuous or good deed yeah. as like leverage for the other things that he isn't doing right Right. like I didn't take money so it doesn't matter that I helped you cover up this mur- like and I'm also not, I'm not gonna like lie on the report but I still helped you cover up a murder of a drug dealer in the projects Right. he sure did like I literally just helped you like fucking take a dude outside and pretend he was alive but we're gonna walk away from this I love how they're like look at this squeaky clean boy scout and that's unironically presented as something he does exactly exactly it's almost too tidy but I wonder how much in the movie's universe the showdown at the custody hearing is meant to explain his later decisions, mm-hmm. right? Like there's the showdown at the custody hearing where he's trying to get custody, like part, at least partial custody of his boy that he's not been around as a father for. And we've seen that in and out throughout the movie. And then his wife in a very like beautifully tidy, dramatic uh, uh, scene uh, explains that like he's been a good cop to allow him to be shitty in every other part of his life. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wonder how much of that we're, supp- again, I don't know the actual history of these these individual characters but I wonder how much like the texture of the movie is or the, the fabric of the movie is trying to point to this is going to lead to him starting to like actually make holistically hmm. good choices and not tactically good choices but I also like your read sin where like did he get paid off? Yeah. <laughs> it's way, way cooler. <laughs> I know how gangsters work and I know how cops work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well ending titles are supposed to make you go oh that's nice I feel a sense of closure not like wait what I want to see that happen do like another hour like they ended on on public enemies they ended on basically they ended suggesting that the narrator of the movie is unreliable oh that's (laughs) like that's the last statement of the movie which I love so much I just think that we just need like American Gangster comma T.O.O. You know, the the bromance years. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. (laughs) Speaking of sort of the the cops v. gangsters and and sin, I love the breakdown of there's like the good, good, Mm. good, bad, 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 good. I love that breakdown. And I love this movie's trying to say so many things all the time in a a tidy way that often it just hits the nail on the head as hard as possible and then moves on. Mm -hmm. And I love the line when Russell Crowe is leaving to go take photos at the fight and it's the, what's it, it's Ali and Frazier? Is that who's fighting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he asks the guy, are you going to watch the fight? And he's like, I don't like boxing. And he says, it's not boxing, it's politics. Politics. Mm, I love that. And I fucking loved that so much. That's just true. This is an important scene because he goes overboard and sticks out too much. He's in front of these Italian mobsters and he is wearing a gigantic chinchilla coat and a big chinchilla hat, which I think looks great. But I'm also like, Frank, you have to be boiling in that outfit. My God. Like, how? <laughs> won't take it off during the fight. Like, what? Honestly, my read of that whole shit, like, I have a very. I just feel like it was, they use Ava as a scapegoat for every bad thing that happened to Frank. Yes, yes. 
Yes, literally, it's like basically like Frank would have been fine if he had never stopped messing with that. If he hadn't fought with that woman, her frivolous, fancy fucking desires for extravagance because he gave her that. She gave him the coat and he like looks at it. He's like, yeah, I guess. And there, this is the, and honestly, I'm going to be real. Like on a man level, I watched that shit yesterday and I was like, I cannot tell you how many times myself and other men I know have done something that felt insincere, inauthentic to them because they thought that they would do it to please a woman. And then it did not go the way that they wanted it to. And then they blamed the woman for what they did of their own (laughs) volition. You know what I'm saying? And so to read that, like to see that, and I was like, yo, and then it's not just the coat. It's that like later she had to stay in the car she doesn't want to get out of the car so it's like i'm like oh i want to sit in the car and then it's like oh turn the heater on so i like now you have to go get the heat and it's like basically while watching that though it's not the only available reading it becomes very easy to be like well if this hadn't happened or this hadn't happened would he have gotten shot Mm. that was my read on the coat thing so hard is i was like really like he couldn't just say if he's so brilliant which we're led to believe the whole movie he couldn't just go this is so beautiful. Thank you so much. I can't wear it tonight with all of this scrutiny because I'm going to get my ass killed. I explained to my family not long ago that they couldn't either. Like, yeah. right. I just cussed my brother out and told him I would kill him because he was dressed too fancy for at a club. Like at a, he was just at a nightclub. <laughs> And it's like, no, like you can love someone and still know how to be a gangster. Facts. And I can't tell you how many gangsters let their shit slide and then blame a woman for it. Yeah. Fucking I'm I'm looking at you, Quavo, who's here to blame Sweetie for whatever his career hasn't done in the last year. He's got a whole album coming about how this like 23 year old girl is like somehow bothered him and kept him from like being as good as he can be. You know what I mean? It's like also very American to blame other people. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. That was like my one, my one just overtly negative note. As I was like, whoa. And it's like, Frank, you can just, you can put it in cold storage, which is where coats like to live anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing is, is Caroline. They do the same thing with uh, Jimmy, who shoots uh, Caroline, the, the dude who ends up mm-hmm. snitching. Oh, yeah. And that's the second time that he gets caught up with, the, with his uh, wife, girlfriend whoever the person is and that's what i mean about the treatment of women is it's very american it's very gangster it's very misogynist in this movie because it's like all of the women are uh threats they like uh, undermine like the the male uh, character's ability to perform or they like that because of their involvement with a woman now they are vulnerable and susceptible to like being caught by the police Mm. he shot uh the cop over caroline in the party which is why they had to block the alpaca Mm. Uh, (laughs) he shot caroline out or he shot caroline outside because of some domestic disturbance which is why they were able to take him in and get the plane tail number and you know get the information which eventually led them to the shipment like literally the movie is set up in a very the writing to me i was like this is really lazy writing yeah like on a, on a craft level like you wrote this in such a way like i'm like based on history and facts i understand you're limited but it's a movie it's fictionalized and like every negative thing happens as a result mm. of a woman's action or woman's involvement and like there are no women like leads at all. you know what i mean it's a very male mm-hmm. male thing so i was like yeah that that's like more one thing that i kind of and I also like, yeah, when I'm 17, I'm probably not watching films looking for like misogyny in the Bechdel test, you know? So I kind of was like hit with this, uh, watching it this time around. Yeah, for sure. 
And yeah, and also, I mean, speaking of Ricky too, like there's this whole kind of plot taken as a given where like, well, he can't be a good father because he's a big slut and he wants to have sex with everyone. And it's like, you can have sex with everyone and you're having sex with everyone time and then you can parent in your parenting time. Like they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I do like the the takeaway was he's so good of a cop he can't be a good dad and I was like that reads that tracks like he only has yeah he only has time for one like labor of love in his life and it's it's like trying to have morals as a cop and it's playing by the books <laughs> yeah I was I was listening to the episode that y'all had and I'm I'm sorry I can't remember her name she was brilliant but the episode that y'all had with your guests on Guardians of the Galaxy oh yeah fangirl Jean. Yeah, fangirl Jean. Yeah, she was brilliant. And y'all were talking about, I think one of the things that I was listening to that while I was like preparing for this episode and I was thinking about how Richie kind of feels and Frank Lucas, they both feel like they're, um, they fall victim to the, um, I don't even say it's like an American dilemma, but it's like you're too busy with your roles of like your dad roles to the community being a king that you can't be a dad to the prince. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have to be a cop. I have to go save the people. So I, I'm going to neglect my son. Or like Frank, he doesn't really have. This is the thing that I think is so interesting about Frank is he has no children, but he's like a super paternalistic figure. And he has all this paternalistic like energy, like Bumpy. And so it's like Bumpy is Harlem's father. Right? Hmm. He says that. And like, he's like, Bumpy took care of Harlem. And he says that later, he's like, I took care of Harlem. So Harlem's going to take care of me. Mm. Right. And it's this like, you really didn't care for people. <laughs> so much as a place and like this is weird like you you have like this over obligation um to an abstraction um such that like there's like uh individual people that you're missing right i lazily maybe subscribe to the idea that you can be great at one thing and good at two other things and everything else is you know you're lucky if you can pull them off and i feel like yeah. <laughs> i feel like frank frank just across the board is great at all at one thing and he puts all of his greatness into those things and is really bad at seeing anything that's not that thing he's great at there's just only so many hours in the day you know no matter how early you get up <laughs> at 5 a.m to go to the diner yeah <laughs> and having breakfast by yourself and he has no idea what Gloucester is, but he went all the way to yes. Vietnam, to the Viet Cong, to get opium straight from the source. Like, you got, you, you can't do everything. <laughs> I love that, that that dude at the end, the, his source in, in, from the Viet Cong, tells him that quitting ahead, quitting while you're ahead isn't the same as quitting. Yeah. Like, if a guy who runs a commercial opium farm gives you life advice, you should probably listen. That's some dad shit. You should. Take that shit, bro. He's the daddy. Real talk, probably. And actually, like, if we were to zoom out and talk about the continuation of, like, the drug trafficking business and, like, what Richie says, like, maybe he is the daddy. <laughs> <laughs> that guy over there. Sarah, can you can you talk a bit about, like, the geopolitics of this movie? Because, again, so much is happening. It's Yeah, it's really interesting. So, so the scene where Bumpy dies, they walk into a big electronic store and it's like, again, like it's very overt in a way that I love where Bumpy starts having, you know, a heart attack or something like that. And Frank's like, somebody help. And Bumpy's like, nope, you can't get anyone to help because it's just one of those big electronic stores and it's a huge store with three people in it. And his whole thing that he's been talking about is that people are cutting out all the middlemen and they want to buy directly from the supplier. And you look at all these electronics and they're all coming directly from Asia, despite the fact that we're having a war with those people right now. So it's almost like Frank just kind of takes Bumpy's last words and turns them into a business plan, actually. 
It's really sweet. And totally. And it's like he's basically like globalization as like a statement. <laughs> and he and then Frank's and Frank's just like, we could maybe use that to our advantage. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'll do that. And he goes to Vietnam. It's like one of those ads for like Starbucks where like we journey around the world to find the precious <laughs> beans. <laughs> it really is shot like that though. Like you're not lying. <laughs> <laughs> we go all the way to Vietnam into the jungle to find the purest heroin. Oh man. Yeah, and that's basically what it is and then he rises the way that he does because he understands that like the prevailing trends in legitimate business in America are having a direct supply chain with no middlemen and offering offering a superior product to consumers and so he does that and it works really well for a while i keep thinking about like you know the bumpy thing that i mean it's like obviously like set up for the whole movie but i keep thinking about how it really feels like you know because that happens and then we get the wake and it's like what does he tell charlie he's like you know half these people own bumpy some money when he died but don't don't worry i'm i'm not gonna forget to collect Mm. and it's like to me i kind of saw frank as like a man who had arranged his life in like such a way to take vengeance on his father's enemies in a sort of way like bump his enemies and like and as he rises to his own success he like use what bumpy told him and then like modernizes it in order to like supersede you know like that's the whole like very american dream is to like supersede or surpass the father or whatever and so like he be- and like he literally says that when he's talking to his family he's like you know my boss ran one of the most uh, successful companies in new york for 15 years but he didn't own it white mm-hmm. man owned him but nobody owns me though that's what he says it's like nobody owns me though and it's like a very like one, like the sort of the cycle of emancipation and the way that like we we think of like black capitalism as a way to like actually get free. Mm. This idea of like, oh, no one owns me. You don't own my labor. You don't, you know, you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. How that connects, but also that like there is a, a it, it's sort of like what we find is that it doesn't actually work, right? Is that there's not actual, you can't actually use capitalism to get free from capitalism um, <laughs> or from racism. Um, but this is like the aspiration that, Frank has um and I think that that's part of I don't I don't know I just I keep thinking about like all of his interactions with the Italians Mm -hmm. as they progress right so the first interaction with um not Catano but the other one who's selling him the he's selling basically they're making the transaction to sell the coke or the or, or the heroin or whatever it is and they're in the thing and he's like you know how's Harlem and he's like, oh, every gorilla for himself. And the Italian's like, that would never happen with Italians. He's like, you know, above uh, any one man's life is order. That's what's most important. Right. Right. And they make these distinctions, these constant distinctions. And like, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm pulling into, there's a movie called Hoodlum with Lawrence Fishburne that is actually about Bumpy Johnson. Oh, yeah, I've seen this. Yeah. So it's about Bumpy Johnson. So it's about like literally it's like basically American Gangster is a continuation mm. of Hoodlum. Not exactly, but kind of. That's really cool. I want to watch that. Um, because Bumpy was a real person and the Madame was also. And so like to see like actually um, Bumpy in, in Hoodlum, it, it talks about how, and I can't remember the Madam's real name, but this is also a real woman who was a, a numbers runner for like gambling in Harlem. And um, this is what Bumpy's business was before it was drugs. He essentially takes the Madam out because he chooses to work with the Italians and she wouldn't. 
Hmm. She would only work in Harlem and it was like, I'm not working with them. And then, you know, he basically says, okay, fine. He does essentially what Sonny, you remember like in, in The Godfather, mm-hmm. Sonny is like trying to make the deal. Um, like you, we should in, include drugs in our business. Vito's like, no. And Sonny's like, no, nah, we need to do it. It's very much that same kind of a situation with Bumpy. And then to see how Frank kind of gets vengeance, because again, like Bumpy didn't get the the praise. He doesn't get to be in the big house. He didn't get to have any of those things. Right. I think what I find my striking about this movie, and it, it's interesting, I'd love to hear more about your take on the Jay-Z making an album piece of this, because Goodfellas is great because it shows what crime in the period looks like. Mm-hmm. And then like the Godfather is great because it shows off like what the family dynamic is in this. And this movie shows off why the crime happens. Mm. And like the only thing that's missing from this movie is explaining that like police forces are extensions of slave catchers. Like mm-hmm. that's the only thing that's I feel like that's the only element. Russell Crowe didn't take that night class. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's this movie saying so much about police in in race without making that connection and, and make, like I'm reading I'm reading Octavia Butler's Kindred right now which is oh, about yeah. sort of someone who who time travels from 76 to 1818 and is like sort of among sort of uh, like a black woman who's in 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 and around slave creatures and chattel slavery and so maybe like my head is more there but like this movie shows that and then shows the stuff that you just that you just been saying uh sin about how you know you can only get so far within it before you're taken mm-hmm. down by it and then to know like that there was this Jay-Z album and like Jay-Z's whole thing is kind of like liberation through black entrepreneurship, which seems to be in contrast <laughs> to what this movie leaves you with. Well, see, this is the, I, and actually like, I would say that I don't know that my reading of American Gangster is the reading that they had, mm. you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like they, they intended right. people to take away. Cause I do think that Jay-Z truly believes that money and like black wealth can be a a vehicle to black liberation but i mean i so i mean i would say like very plainly it's very obvious like jay-z the idea of american gangster and frank lucas that is like jay-z's like i mean i wouldn't even, or maybe it is wish fulfillment but maybe it's just him you know what i mean in a certain way like he sees himself in that and i think that um without being too critical of a man that I haven't met, uh, mm. I would question his whether he sees that in himself or not. Like that feels like an exception and not like a standard. And like with black capitalism and people who advocate for black capitalism, I'm confused as to w- at what point does it start to become like a mass liberation movement? Ho. Mm-hmm. How many mm-hmm. billions you got to get before you start saying like, all right, here's 10,000 people I can lift up. Like, you know what I'm right, saying? Like, right. And this is a question in terms of like, I, I, before I like get into a whole rant, because I could like criticize like black capitalism and like hip hop and Jay-Z for a very long time. I'll just say that like the album served the messaging of the movie and such that it glamorized the idea of like a black organized crime figure. And it contributed to the idea that like you could embrace that successfully mm-hmm. like there's a thing that jay so there's one of the, one of my favorite songs on that album is say hello and jay-z like the hook is like say hello to the bad guy they say i'm a bad guy like it's like jay-z he's like yeah i'm the bad guy so what i'll be the bad guy it's like literally from like uh from scarface right he's oh, like, yeah. like okay right. say hello to the bad guy yeah you know it's like that thing and he's like doing that because there's like a way that 
one blackness like me and Sarah talk about this a lot like if you're a black part of like what it means to be black in America is that everything that is considered negative about our society that we all share will be projected onto you Mm -hmm. so like we're all violent we're all materialistic we're all self-centered or selfish and individualistic because that's what we're conditioned to be but black people are Dem, like we, we're represented as like the most extreme and exaggerated versions of that and especially within hip-hop hmm. and so there's ways that the album accentuates or emphasizes the messages that we get in the in the movie and makes them more palatable to a, like a young person like me when i was hearing it um hmm. and i think in some ways it sort of created a distance that didn't allow me to engage with the with the content of the film as it was like i i, I think mm. i muddied some of the content of the album with the content mm. of the film yeah if that makes sense yeah and like the, I, like in terms of like reading like re- going back and re-watching it they don't add up they don't line up you know what i mean it's a good soundtrack for whatever for the kind of life that frank lucas or jay-z uh, might be living in a very luxury new york um experience but it doesn't seem like i mean i know real gangsters from america and it don't seem like that's not the kind of music they don't get to like go to like nice dinners at Italian restaurants. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's not really what right. they do um, all the time. And so I think that that was like one of the things where like the, the thing that I loved about the film, also a thing that I am starting to like, I'm just sitting with more and more is this like the insistence on it's the American gangster. Mm. Mm. Right. Like yes. we need to know that. And it's very like Langston. He's like, I too sing America. Like I am a gangster too. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a chapter in the souls of black folk by W.B. Du Bois or it's called the O Atalanta chapter. And it's about um, Atalanta, the Greek goddess. Um, and he uses her as a, a metaphor for like uses the city of mm. Atlanta and Atalanta as like a metaphor and basically says like, you know, if you look to Atlanta, this is our greatest, this is our Mecca, this is our metropolis. We seem to think that all of the financial and economic success here is representative of black progress, but be careful because you will in trying to prove your worth and trying to prove your humanity, you will learn to act like white people. Mm -hmm. You will take on white capitalism and white materialism as a way of trying to prove to white people that you're human like them. Right. And this is the thing that happens in American Gangster, and this is the thing that happens with black capitalists, is that we like want to prove like we're just as good. We can play your game. We get with the mob. We can beat you at your own game. We can beat the cops at their own game. We'll come like of, of in terms of like assessing rules based on arbitrary or you know applying the rules arbitrarily based on these values, right? We can do all mm-hmm. those things, but then we forget that like, well, is that really like what makes somebody human? And is that actually like, and do we want to convince these people that we're human or will we rather just like live our lives and take care of our people? Yeah. Right. There's a preoccupation with like proving yourself in the, in the album and in the movie that is counter revolutionary to me. Yeah. It's like, it's hard to say how much the movie knows about what it's showing, but like all the white men in this movie or like almost all of them are kind of awful. Like Russell Crowe is our, protagonist (laughs) yeah and he's like and he's doing his best but it's also interesting that like in these endings like the ending subtitles it ends with Russell Crowe finally catching Frank Lucas and they have this final conversation which actually let's talk about that because I was struck by the fact that Frank Lucas has a speech that is very similar to what I think of as one of the famous Angela Davis monologues. Oh, that's where, is that where I recognize that from? The whole thing with the gunshot? Yeah, yes. I didn't watch it to refresh, so I'm gonna, this is gonna be rough, but like, 
there's it was an interview that she gave that I think was on TV and the interviewer who was white was like why do you condone violence or like why use violence to try and change society or whatever and she's like well like the very basic kernel of what she was saying was like well I grew up with violence directed at me and at black people constantly so like I couldn't choose to live outside of violence like my, that that's my read of that like is that accurate <clears throat> yeah i mean i would i don't know the the speech that you're referring to but i would definitely like that i think that that was the point right because the question that he gets is like you know things can go back to normal for the mob mm. like this is what he's saying and he's like why the fuck whatever pe- if people want things to go back to normal then y'all are already operating from a framework and understanding of reality that is entirely different and divorced from mine. Right. You know, because it's like my normal is something that I've been working constantly to uh, restructure or change. Right. For people to want a return to normalcy suggests that you don't understand how much suffering is involved Mm. in my normal. Right. And we saw how much of that during like the past four years of Trump is people were like, I can't wait for it to get back to normal. And it's like, are you fucking serious? Like, for <laughs> I mean, for you, for you, for people, frankly, like me, for whom America is like a relatively easy place to live in, like Trump was maybe upsetting largely because it was like flipping over a log and being like, ew. Yeah. Like, this is upsetting to me, but also, like, I'm still standing here looking at a log. And I, I wonder how much, like, I wonder that that speech that you brought up, which, again, like, the framework for the speech is basically, like, you know, Frank r- reveals the violence he's watched, which is largely state violence against black people since he was six. And so him doing what he's doing is kind of claiming, you know, what he's able to, what he's able to claim out of that, which is, like, again, like, not erasing any of the bad stuff that happens from what he does, but it is an absolutely understandable explanation if you don't leave people opportunity, people People will find the opportunity that they can find. And if they become good at it, they'll probably become, you know, revolutionary in one way or another. And I wonder how much of like the Jay-Z adoption of that comes from this thing that like Frank is, is regularly told on a handful of occasions is he like represents progress to right. all these different to, to all these different people. And there's like an aesthetic of that where it's like his success is inherently crippling to a lot mm. of the even just psychologically, it's inherently right. crippling to the people who think that they are the gatekeepers of success in the country. Which is what's fun about watching this movie, too, just watching Josh Brolin get fucking tortured. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, like, the success speech that Don Catano gives, like, is so cool. Like, I don't know, just hearing you say that, because, like, yeah, your success took a shot at you. So what are you going to do? Mm. You're going to become unsuccessful? And it's this idea of, like, becoming... I don't know what you're saying is making me think of this like Tupac. There's like a very like famous Tupac interview from the 90s where he's like black people. We all have to like he's like we all have to like save our entire family. He's like we have to build it from the ground. He's like you know there's people who inherit. He's like you inherit your like your car or like you know you work for the family business or you do this or that. He's like we all of us are working to build an empire each right and that like. There's a pressure that comes with that, I think, mm-hmm. and like a, pr- a pressure to sustain mm-hmm. that, 
Right. And so I do think that like in some ways, like what you're saying, like just as much as Frank Lucas's success became crippling, psychologically crippling and Jay-Z's yeah. success too, to other people in, in their respective industries, it also becomes it's uh, seen as like fuel or inspiration for people within the community. I guess I, I just say this because I do want to give a little bit of grace. It's very easy for us to sit and to say, or maybe it's not very easy. I shouldn't say that, but it's very common for people to sit and say like, what about these black billionaires in hip hop? Like what, like, you know, what's up with that? You guys' politics doesn't align. You guys might as well be imperialist. But I do. And I've had this conversation with other people before where I'm like, it is not the same thing for a white person who inherited wealth or a white person living in this country to like generate and hoard wealth as it is for someone Mm -hmm. like Jay-Z who is like not born with it and who knows like how tumultuous and how like Mm -hmm. immediately things can shift you know what I mean it's like if a person like him were to say to me like you know I know that you may not understand my my choices economically or financially but I'm doing this because I believe this is what's best for not just myself but for black people and that I think I have Mm -hmm. a plan that can help black people then I don't really think that there's space for me to criticize you because we haven't really none of us are free Mm-hmm. It sucks to bring this up right now. And they, I hate that it happens so often that we have to bring this mm-hmm. up right now. But it's like Derek Chauvin's on trial and they just killed Dante Wright. Right. And even at like the Jay-Z level, look at what happened after eight years of Barack Obama. Right. Look at what the blowback was in the country. Right. Like the blowback was like, let's double down on how it was before. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a tremendous point. Yeah. Or like we are so wounded at having a black man in power that we're going to just go even crazier than usual. Exactly. So I don't blame a person who's there to say like, well, you know, I'm going to, but I I don't know. It's a very paradox for me because it's the same thing. So Jay-Z, Jay-Z, Frank Lucas, all of these people have done the same thing that essentially generations of Americans have done, which is to surrender to the limitations of the system that we're born into Mm. to say like, okay, I was born into a capitalist system, so I must be a capitalist. Maybe I can change it from the inside. Yeah. Mm. I was born into a system that has inequitable justice within the justice system, but so maybe I can do something to change it from working within it but you surrender to the limitations set by the institution of the system that you're born into and then you work within that framework and then somehow we're always surprised that like you can't be outside of it i feel like the goal in an equitable society as far as i can tell is like for everyone to have the effects of generational wealth or what the effects of generational wealth are now (laughs) (laughs) say that Cause I don't need the money. Just give me the healthcare, education, and security. Like that's literally it. Yeah, and like being raised by people who like might be screwed up, but like in a way where they have a buffer. Where like if they have like a bad week, you're like fed and have a house and all of that. Yeah, I guess the you know I mean some of my ancestors were German Jews who emigrated to Wisconsin and then eventually were able to have mitten factories. I guess learned this. I, th- I thought I only knew they had a knitting mill in Milwaukee, but it turned out they also had one in Chicago and Two Rivers, Wisconsin, and they made mittens and gloves. And I was like, I didn't know it was mittens. <laughs> That's cute. And so, and so now I'm like, okay, so like the, the goal, I think, and what happened there and was able to happen there because the mitten industry 
while exploitative and while I'm sure like dangerous and unjust for the workers in those factories in many ways, like I don't think that they were like fun mitten factories to work in. What are the odds? But like that's a legitimate business that you don't get arrested for doing. Mm. And there's capitalist compromise that you buy into to become an American and to become a financially mm. secure mm-hmm. or even wealthy American. And yeah, and what this movie shows, I think, is that the way that Frank transgresses might have more to do with buying into capitalism in some ways than buying into organized crime. Yes. Yeah, because that's the whole Dominic Catano. He's like, what do you, you like monopolies, Frank? Like that shit was so ironic too. He said it's un-American to eat at the unreasonable expense of others. It's like Dominic. <laughs> he said everybody's got to eat, but we just can't do it at the unreasonable expense of others. That then it becomes un-American. And I said Dominic. <laughs> and then did I read that scene wrong? Does he basically say that like my buddies are against progress and I'll make sure they stay out of your way yeah. if? So he's basically like, your monopoly, which is getting in the way of me making money, is making me uncomfortable. So we need to do something about this. And if you don't do something about it, my buddies who are racist are going to kill you. But I'll stop them from killing you as long as you make me money. Mm. Literally. (laughs) Literally. And it's like, and with some of the, honestly, I would say like, that is some of the best real, like high, like third level dialogue that yeah. I see in the movie because he's like you know like these guys he's like they're not they're not enlightened people like me they don't he's like they don't really care he's like they just they don't care who makes the money as long as the same people are making it he's like you know I do business yeah. for you you're good you keep getting bigger someone's gonna come for you you need that peace of mind I don't know that shit was crazy that was like one of <laughs> one of my favorite scenes because they walk out in the way that it like it because they both hate each other just the other right. thing is they hate mm-hmm. each other, but they're like, what you're saying is they're doing it because capitalism, because money is more important than my personal fucking uh, respect for you or whatever. So we're going to come and do this dance. And then like, I'm going to fucking leave and take your fucking Cuban cigar and throw it on the <laughs> ground. <laughs> he takes the cigar and throws it on the ground. Wife's like, they look at us like, where the hell? He's like, they work for me now. And that's one of the things I thought. I was like, this is his mm-hmm. pinnacle moment. It's actually like I think I thought that that was the moment in which Frank felt like he had won because the white man worked right. for him now, and he was like right. it was the exact opposite of Bumpy. He had finally like Bumpy spent his entire career and he had been driving Bumpy around like seeing them mistreat him and all of this, and then now he walks out of here and he's like I'm gonna throw your cigar on the ground. You work for me. You won't make the money you make if you don't come for me. You know what I mean? Do you think that that was a choice of his to look at it that way? Because like the other read is if he does not participate, I mean, he's making money for sure and he's supplying and this guy needs him. But the alternative is he gets murdered. Like he must know. I don't think he was actually concerned about that, though. Yeah. Okay. I think it's like a threat that was made, but it's like, you know, same thing with Nikki. Nikki Barnes, like in the club. Like, I mean, every time anything happens with Frank, come on, like with Tango, he's like, my man, come on. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you gonna kill me? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in front of Trupo, he's like, he's like, well, uh, how about your house blows up next? Right, right, right. You know, like, I don't think Frank is afraid of anyone. Yeah. But, like, there's also, there's a little bit of language suggesting that Frank is a cow. Because there's the thing where Dominic is a dairy farmer in this kind of analogy they're using. Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. And then I think Frank refers to himself as a cash cow. Later on, no, they called a uh, Trupo called him a cash cow. Trupo called him a cash cow. That's right. I don't, and I, that was the thing that I didn't understand. I was like, at that point, it seemed to me as if Trupo thinks that Richie is still not a clean cop. Yeah. Mm. Like, because there's the thing that happens with the money. Like, he has to go get the money back. And in that moment, it is clear to all those cops. Like, those cops know that Richie just caught them about to like 
take that money mm-hmm. because there was no procedure. No one was arrested. So it was very clear, like, you're about to come up on this money. So they know that they caught him doing something or that he saw them doing something dirty. But then he comes back to have a conversation with him. And it's a not so subtle conversation. There was no conver- There was nothing about arrest or about, like, why we need to be able to, like, clock these things. He just literally right. says, this guy makes a lot of money. We need to keep him alive. And then that's when Richie is like, you know, we arrest bad guys over here. So maybe you should get the fuck out of here. And that ties interestingly to the to one of the last title cards, which like, I, again, I don't I, I'm not in, very intimately familiar with this history. But based on my dad's hatred of cops, I imagine that there's some truth there where it says three, oh. three quarters of the of the New York DEA was taken Facts. down in this 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 operation. Facts. I love again, like I love that as the binary between where it's like, you know, like Frank doesn't like pursue organized crime. He pursues the opportunity in front of him. And that is organized crime. And I could kind of see this as the read where it's like if three quarters of the DEA goes down and this, I don't know what the deal is with with whether or not Richie is taking money. But I imagine if you are a cop in this situation, there's part of you that just is just like being a cop is taking money. Mm-hmm. Right. Three quarters of us at least got caught doing it. So, like, if you're not taking money, how are you even a thing? Well, and, the, and Ricky's kind of the Serpico character. And the whole thing with Serpico is that he was like this amazing rogue cop who dared to not be crooked, and everyone hated him so much. <laughs> and, like, that's the whole Serpico thing. And people still like throw around the name right. Serpico as like the ultimate in cop heroism. And that was someone who. I mean, there is still, like, I know that there are people who are, like, wanting to be cops and changing it from the inside, and I just am amazed that people think that they're capable of that, I guess. I think that the people who think that way have, like, very—I don't want to say your ego is big. I want to say your critical thinking skills are low. Like, it's just like, bro, based on evidence, like, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Oh, I wonder, too, how much of it, like Richie, is just like you need some part of your life to be coded mm. and to have like this regimented piece where like you do everything by the, it's almost like for a form of fanatical, you know, being a, a uh. religious fanatic and like you can do that. But like on this, your side life, you do all these things that are like not great because you sort of adhere to the, you adhere to these values. Like I wonder how much of it becomes like a fixation because yeah, like all of history of police being a thing at the very least in this country, which is the only mm-hmm. one I'm familiar with is there's not a lot of fixing from the inside going on in a way that's beneficial for everybody. <laughs> like there's not a lot not of cops sitting around being like, I would like to be held to a higher standard. <laughs> I am hazardous to others. <laughs> right. Because it's also the, the one of the most backwards fucking things about our society is that we think that people get better when other people force them to. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, you know what I mean? Like that's like the weirdest thing. One of the things I want to say too though is that um they did leave out the number of military members that were involved in that arrest oh. and hmm. shit too. So fun little tidbit. I actually did not know this until like a few months ago. Or actually no, it was a couple of years ago, but Pops, my dad who I adopted or who adopted me and then I adopted. Wow, that both of those statements were true. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so Pops was OSI. Uh, he was in the Air Force for 30 years. He was special investigations in the Air Force. Pops actually worked on the case and helped to solve this Frank oh, Lucas wow. case. Holy crap. When they were bringing, he, like literally, I was like, we were watching American Gangs like a few months ago. And I was just like, mm, and I just randomly, I was like, yo, Pop, you remember this? Because he was in non shit. I was like, you remember this? Like when this happened? He was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, like you know, it's like Frank Lucas shit. He was like, those are the people that was bringing the drugs in on the caskets? 
And I was like, what? He's like, yeah. He was like, yeah. It was like a whole thing. I'm like, wait, no. Like you and yeah. So Pops was like, uh, special investigations. He said there was a large number. Like there was a large number of military personnel that were also arrested, gone through Mm -hmm. like court martial and jailed for that kind of stuff. I'm interested to know. Like I really, I didn't do the research, but I want to know. Like because we saw how many people were indicted. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, we know cops get indicted for shit all the time and nothing happens. Like, you know right, what I mean? Right. So I was like, they got, they, they were like, but how many of them went mm-hmm. to jail? What were the jail sentences like? They get out after a year and go be cops somewhere else? Did they all get their own Russell Crowe who was obsessed with taking them down personally? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. They found another guy who's going to be like the, like clean house or what? Because I'm like, I don't know, just like with the, the dude from um, Chicago, there's that Chicago police chief got found for like falsifying and like forcing confessions over like 60 60 confessions forced tons of convictions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what i mean and he'd been taking money like mad corrupt this dude was in his like 60s or something when they found him like 60s or 70s and he, like, i mean they arrested him gave him like you know but it's like you're gonna go to jail for five years you were retired from the force for like 20 years like you're good you lived a whole life mm-hmm. yeah. you know what i mean so I, I guess that's the other thing like there's a lot of stuff we're talking about stuff that's not in the movie now i guess yeah. <laughs> like i'm thinking about the things that aren't in the movie the stuff surrounding the movie yeah 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 just questions i had i just what a bum i mean a bum rap is like the empire you live in is like you got to go fight this ridiculous political war we're going to put you in jail and it's going to cook your brain and you're going to come back an addict and if you do this thing that's like going to like try to make you any sort of a livelihood from coming home you're also going to go to jail (laughs) like it's like what a fucking (laughs) facts it's like so if you were like a a conscientious objector go to jail for two to three years go to vietnam suffer trauma if you come back at all oh my god (laughs) stay here work a work a a job on the streets so you don't have like your legitimate thing as soon as we catch you we'll put you in jail dude it is nuts it's like and then it's like yeah so what the fuck you think like of course there's a lot of gangsters running around yeah americans are so weird and so fascinating and i guess speaking of white americans who i know intimately it's like we love professing to hate crime and then we love telling stories about crime and about clever criminals who did smart crime yeah. and, and didn't get caught or they did get caught and then they became good in the end so you can enjoy it or just like so many of our folk heroes are are criminals and like I'm not against that I just think that if we love criminals so much we should like show we should like do more for criminals <laughs> <laughs> Or recognize that the concept of crime is like something that we invented and that maybe if so many of the people we love are technically criminals, that means that the category is, is made up or something. I don't know. Right. Because also like for me, it's like the, the idea of a criminal is like, I think there's like a funny thing like you know, there's like a new trope or like a joke about the dumb criminal mm. because you have to kind of like add a modifier to criminal for it right. to be dumb. Right. Like something about criminal suggests that there's like a like a perceptiveness, right? Like there's like a, oh, like you figured out how things work and you trick the system or beat it, yes. right? And then there's like the gangster, like organized crime member has just like replicated like the American model, like in that way, because essentially the American model is like, we're a group who is like self-regulated and we like identified values that we claim to understand as universally human, like 
honesty or family or hard work and we will justify violence against others in order to secure the safety of our group Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is like essentially like the american ideal and like a organized crime group is that but like they do it while also fighting against like sort of not i guess fighting against we're working against the criminal justice system which is attempting to like stop them from doing so so it makes you seem like twice as smart <laughs> you know what i mean right. mm-hmm. it's kind of like one of the only classic american scenarios that's like the same now as it was in the 1800s right. is like rival essentially just like rival gangs like that's why people fucking loved gangs mm-hmm. of in new york because they were like yeah it's just always been happening like in one way or another I, that just makes me think that a country is just a gang that gets really really big yes <laughs> tribalism and nationalism are just like it's a smaller cup for the same thing right <laughs> totally it's so good the we haven't we haven't even talked about the music yet oh yeah the, the music is amazing oh. i think and it really sticks in my head yeah shout out anthony hamilton for that song and also like 100 across 110th street yes which is like maybe the perfect song for this entire thing like it's like the whole content yeah yeah yeah. when does that come in so when they're selling the uh when like the sales start happening and he's like got his little mask on oh yeah i remember now but basically like so it's by bobby womack and the song is like being across 110th Street is a hell of a tester. Mm. Said, been down so long, getting up didn't cross my mind, but I knew there was a better way of life that I was just trying to find. You don't know what you do till you're put under pressure. Across 110th Street is a hell of a tester. It's about Mark, <laughs> it's about Harlem. He's like, you know, he's got I got one. He's like I got 116 to 151st. That's what he's telling the Dominic Catano. He's like I own Harlem, river to river. That's what uh, Frank is saying, and it's like. I don't know. I just thought the song was amazing because it's about like yeah. the way that like these environments will force you to mm. do the most. And then he's like, I actually own the whole thing. Like, you know, I- <laughs> it's also interesting to me that like the organized criminals in this movie are the ones who have like happy family scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frank has that. <laughs> and then Ricky's crooked fan- friend has like, a, you know, yep. this like nice house and a nice family. And there's like lots of kids and people are like swimming in the pool and Ricky's just like lonely and sweaty. Yep, and Trupo too. <laughs> Trupo too, sitting alone, sitting alone in the fucking dark house yeah. on Thanksgiving yeah. and shit. Yeah. I don't know, there's this weird, it's like saying it like out of both sides of its mouth, but that like your values are not more important than your actions. Mm. Like the way you behave is actually more important than what you say you value. And that like, because, and it's saying it in so many ways because it's like, that is why Frank and Sedano have like good families, like family lives, but it's also what leads them to like fuck up at the end. Mm-hmm. Because it's like you say that these are your values, but you actually have to behave that way. So when it comes to Sedano, like, because I don't think, I don't know how y'all mm-hmm. read it, but I felt like when Sedano was doing that, that was like intentional. They were giving Frank up. Yeah. Like it was like, it was like a staged bribe because I was like, you're not dumb. Like, you've never said his name before at all. And, like, maybe you thought that they knew and maybe this is your friend. But I also was, like, it seemed like a kind of thing from, like, within the Italians to be, like, look, this guy is getting too big. We can give his name up. But then what Sedano is doing is he's, like, jeopardizing, one, his own family life because you know Richie might be the type to actually turn you in. Or you're jeopardizing your relationship with your friend. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is to say that, like, you're, you're acting in a way that does not reflect those values. Right. And it costs you. Right? Same thing with Frank. The fact that they did successfully put Frank in prison at all, like, I mean, I don't know. But to me, it suggests that 
he was going to be like the first to be ratted on, the first to be given up. Because like if you're more insulated and protected by more layers of, of I don't know what, of just to be taken, to be seen as more important and less expendable by more people, then I think it's harder to get to you. Yeah. Oh, also just thinking about the house, I guess like I just am interested in the ways that Frank's redeeming trait is supposed to be in some ways like the, his treatment of his mother. Like, like, mm-hmm. like, like that, like him buying the house, right. Him taking Ava to the house. Like those are, there's like a few things about him and like ways that we see, like he's like a, he gets to be tender or we get to see him care about things in a way that feels genuine. Right. He remembers, he remembers how to make that desk from memory from when he was five. Right. You know, he talks about bumping. He's like as important to me as MLK. And I thought that that was interesting too. Cause you gotta remember again, he doesn't, we, we, we never get a father figure yeah. and he says, this was my boss. He taught me how to take my time. He taught me how to take care of things, to uh, do things with love. And these are very much things that you would assume your, your dad teaches you. Mm. And we often think that your dad would teach you. And like that's mm. also like a very black American, like historically like black American, right? Is that your dad is kind of like your boss, but that comes from the fact that like your slave owner was your boss. And also like the most paternal figure that you have. And I like sometimes people think that's a stretch, but like, I don't know, like I, a lot of stuff with my pops, like pops 81, we had a conversation um, like a few weeks ago about his childhood and stuff. And he was like, the man who raised him was raised by a slave owner. Wow. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So my dad learned how to parent from a person who didn't have parents and only had a mm-hmm. slave master. Right. And so like then even for me, the model that I have for my dad is very much like a person who is like your boss, who is like, get up, get to work, do your shit. And like, not like in a way like, you know, my, my dad's great. I love my dad. But also like, there's a way that like bosses are fathers and like, mm-hmm. they're not dads. <laughs> like fathers are not fathers, they're mm-hmm. bosses. And then like, it, and like this creates that kind of like, it's familial, but it's business, which is why you can like say, I'm here for my family. I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to move you all up. But yeah. everyone has to work. And like, if you fuck it up because you're going back home, right? It's not like it is family, but it's business is is above that, above all. Yeah. Right. And and that I, you know, I have certain ironclad rules that you have to follow to not rock the boat for everybody. And if you can't abide by that, then like the stakes are too high because, yeah, you're in a position where loyalty is different when uh, when prison and, or death are on the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And family, I mean, until not very long ago. In pre-industrial, I mean, even in even obviously in post-industrial time, but like in pre-industrial time, like families were the business. Mm. That is it. Yeah, exactly. You grew up on a farm, you live in a farm or like you guys had to work together in order to like sell or make whatever mm-hmm. you were doing. You know what I mean? That's absolutely a yeah. hundred. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then and then grimly sort of within slave trade, like or people owned families who did business for them. And then it sounds like you're talking about like with this what generation removed you're talking about by which someone who was a slave slaveholder was teaching essentially how to parent all of that starts to blend together and then you have these things you know you have these learned traumas that are supposed to look like what we consider family now mixed in with business and everything just inherently gets messy yeah i think that's the old american dream of like the 70s is like you start the family business you have like your mom and pop you like give it to your kids right like that's kind of like that thing i don't know that that's what people are sort of pushing now and it's like not commonly like what I think about it's a lot more of like you know everyone wants to be an entrepreneur start your own thing but I think that we still yeah even currently there are so many families I know who they have like their parents had more children because it meant more help 
mm-hmm. like right. straight up. You know what I mean? You know, that's in the, in the 21st century when education is limited to people, which is like still very relevant to the movie. More people means like, you know, the amount of money a person can make based on their labor with no education is lower. And so you need more people to generate the same income. So do we have, do we have any do we want to offer any like wrapping thoughts about this before we get into our who's the daddy question? Um oh okay Denzel Washington is the universal black dad even when he doesn't <laughs> have a kid in the fucking movie somehow he like feels like every black dad and if Denzel like if you ever hear this shout out to you cuz you are <laughs> you know what I'm saying a good model good model Well what do you think is a good model about him it's probably the emotional range and intelligence, like the emotional control, because it's like even though like in, in films like Fences or films like this, where he like is asked to like play a role where a person loses, you know, loses their temper, acts out in rage and like a dad does that. He's always like his character is a person who is quite obviously like able to work through difficult situations mm. and like communicate with men and teach Right. Like it's like the way that he talks with T.I. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, T.I. at the end. He's like, T.I., why didn't you go? To, he's like, why didn't you go to the, the meeting? I set you mm-hmm. up with the meeting with the Yankees. You didn't go. And he's like, tell me, what do you want? Like, what do you want? He doesn't get mad at him. He doesn't judge him. I wanted to see that like uh, interaction prolonged a little bit more because he basically tells him, you know, I want what you want. I, I want what you have. I want to be you, Uncle Frank. And then he has to get up and go to see Nikki. But like, I think like moments like that are what really because I think that when I think about my own childhood and some of my friends and even my dad, like black dads are unfortunately not great at sitting and communicating with black sons through their problems. Mm-hmm. It is really often expected that young black boys or young black men will understand that we will simply know what to do or just do it because we know that we have to do it and that it's not usually a priority to help us achieve understanding, Mm. right? It's like, do what you're supposed to or else and please just do it. Don't cause us trouble. You know what I mean? Because there's already so much trouble. I think that when I see Denzel, he's like a person who, in all those moments, he communicates and he communicates with like a a nice tone and he's like level, you know, I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Dude, it's wild that like Denzel is America's black dad in this situation and everyone says that Tom Hanks is America's white dad and I can't imagine a bigger lie wow. than Tom Hanks is America's white dad. Wait, but is that a lie? Because <laughs> I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, is it? Because I'm like, actually though, like who's, okay, who is it then? It's aspirational for sure. But like white dads are. It, oh, right. It is aspirational. So right. Who's the, who's the white dad? Oh, oh yeah, okay, okay, like okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. You mean like if we were like being nice, like the good white dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like what everyone would like to happen. And the actual dad is uh, Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. Yeah, Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. Probably like fucking Donald Trump. Like, <laughs> yeah, that is that is America's world. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is yeah. the truth. Yeah. I mean, the, honestly, and it's funny because like my dad isn't even American, but he reminds me so much of Donald Trump at times. And he hates Donald Trump and he's a lefty, but like... He still has the problem that Donald Trump has, which is like an inflamed, throbbing ego that hurts if you walk within five feet of it and (laughs) will just fall into a pit and then can't regulate, can't stop attacking you, can't get out. And it's like, that's Trump. Like, that's just the wound. And it's like, it's not cultural. It's psychic damage. (laughs) It's the wound. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So like that. So America's white dad is a is a throbbing wound, but we would like it to be Tom Hanks. Sarah, do you have any wrapping thoughts before the daddy? America's daddy is a wound. Thank you. Um, my my final thought <laughs> was that I kind of feel that my interpretation of the ending at this point is that. This whole movie, Russell Crowe is trying to, or for most of this movie, Russell Crowe is trying to take down Frank Lucas, or the entity who he eventually figures out is Frank Lucas. And then he gets him, and then they have a conversation, and then Frank goes to prison, and then we learn in subtitles that Richie stops being a cop or a prosecutor, which is what he was working toward for the whole movie, and becomes a defense lawyer, and then helps get Frank get out of prison after 15 years instead of the original 70 he was sentenced to. And I just feel like the experience of, like, make, like dramatically, it feels like the experience of making that big collar was, like, not what he thought it would be, and he, like, destroyed the life of a man who he actually respected because, like, everyone around him is so hateful Ooh. and gross, except John Hawks, who always comes across as pretty decent. Yeah, I love that because you're right not because it's like, yeah, you fucked up Frank Lucas's life and Frank says it. He's like, That's, nothing's going to change. It's like going on a safari and shooting a lion and you're like, now I have this dead lion that I'm responsible for taking off of the earth. <laughs> mm. Well, it's like he spent the whole movie just knowing the cops were bad. And then he had to be face to face with the guy who cops being bad ended up partially taking him down. And then he's like, nah, all right, I got to fucking finally call mm. it in. It's very tight. Again, very tidy. Also, honestly, can I just say that I said I have rapping thoughts, but it's just the most white male thing to be like, cops are bad, but I'm going to stick around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can change them. <laughs> See how this goes. <laughs> We're just feeling like, I mean, this is like the kind of white American dream concept in a nutshell too this idea of like no matter what the circumstances are i can come in and under what i perceive to be the strength of my own individual abilities will do great and either it's a situation where like your your imaginary dad is pushing you the whole time and you think you're pedaling the bike or you can't and you're underestimating the complexity of an institution or a structure that you live inside of or you feel like you live outside of any structure, but actually you're at the top of one. Yeah, my gosh. All right, well, we know that this movie is full of dads, figurative yes. and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Who do we believe to be the daddy? So many possibilities, honestly. My take on the daddy in this movie is heroin. Mm. Heroin is the daddy in this movie. Heroin is the thing that keeps... That keeps everything moving the whole time. It really bites you in the ass a lot of the time and destroys your life. In this movie, at least, I'm not suggesting heroin overall is the daddy. It's horrible. Mm. It's the daddy in that wound way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It can be great. It can be real bad. But for the most part, it's just going to drag you down in a, in a pretty substantial mm. way. <laughs> That's my daddy, this go. It's like, I mean, Frank seems like the obvious choice because he's the one who does exert the most control over everything that's happening, which is a very daddy thing. And then, like, like none of the characters pursuing him, I think, are, are daddy in any way. Like, the, the white cops all seem to be kind of bumbling in a sense. Like, they can't tell what's going on. They're fighting with each other. They're kind of bloated and self-important. I don't know. That coat? That coat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I want to redo my daddy before sin wows us. 
my daddy is, and I'm revisiting something I said earlier, the Viet Cong guy. Yes. Yes. That's a daddy. Who reminded Frank. <laughs> then this is not a thing that dads will ever tell you, that quitting while you're ahead is not the same as quitting. I guess, like, it's okay to quit, sweetie. Because I think the daddy, like... The two categories we break this down to is, like, someone you're thirsty for or the kind of person who has, like, emotional intelligence to spare in some way or who can, like, tell you when to call it. And mm. no one in yeah. this movie can say uh, when to call it. I'm going to say the daddy is Charlie. Mm. Mm. Who, if you remember, Charlie is the one who comes to him and, you know, after at Bumpy's mm. wake and he's there with him when he's decorating the Christmas yeah. tree. It's Miles Dyson. Is that Miles Dyson? It's this guy's been in like several movies that we've watched. Yeah, oh yeah, gosh. Miles Dyson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy, he is great, and he is also. So I'm like I'm hearing your Sarah, you saying that is what mm. maybe because I was gonna say like maybe it's like capitalism or something, but like no, it's Charlie because Charlie is there at mm. every point. He is mm. always calm, and he's always there in crisis. And he's there to support. What I will say is he doesn't necessarily like guide or correct Frank because I don't think that's a re their relationship. But, um, you know, he's he's checking in. Are you OK? You know, these fucking cops, they're crooks. I can't stand them. You know, he's there to commiserate and to be like a, a, a place of affirmation and validation. And there's no negative anything that mm. ever comes from him. And he's also older than him. He's Bumpy's old friend. Right. Mm. And kind of a link to the, the way things were before. I am going to continue mm -hmm. with my, my wild card idea and say it's that chinchilla coat and hat combo. Because, like, honestly, I do. I love furs as a little theme in gangster movies. And, like, <laughs> there's the obvious parallel with Goodfellas with, like, take it back. Take it back. <laughs> I don't care what you do mm -hmm. with it. Just take it back. Just, like, I told you, like, when you tell someone not to buy something extravagant or to look extravagant, like, probably the best way to break that rule is to drape yourself in fur yeah. and it's also a plot point in casino where like ace woos ginger and part of it is just by he gives her a lot of jewelry and a lot of fur and there's the part where he gives her the chinchilla and he like wraps her up in it and she's like nobody's ever been so nice to me and like it's the chinchilla mm -hmm. <laughs> like chinchilla mm -hmm. does things to people i think <laughs> <laughs> You know, and so this is like Frank sees the coat and like, yeah, it's got a beautiful woman inside of it, but it's also a great coat. And that's like him getting high on his own supply to quote another movie. Mm hmm. Sin, where can people find you? Oh, shit. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Sin from Vegas. Uh, and my website is toyourwishes.com. Sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was so fun. It was hella fun. Yeah, yeah. If you guys want me to come back and talk about some other gangster films, please just give me a call. <laughs> we clearly have like a lot more to discuss. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of Wire Dads. Thank you so much to Sin for joining us for this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, of course, for putting together this beautiful episode and making it sound so great. Carolyn is our producer and she's also our music director. Uh, you can find her at carolynkendrick.com. She's got an EP called Tear Things Apart that you might be interested in checking out. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for uh, our transitional beats that appear in the show. 
thank you for hanging out with us and hopefully you'll find us on social media uh, or on Twitter and Instagram. I am on, uh, on what's it called? TikTok <laughs> at Alex Steed. Uh, we are just, we're so happy that we get to do this with you. We appreciate you and uh, we look forward to hanging out with you again next week. All right, everybody, that's it from us. Thank you so much.